Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 2. Uh, one of the, the phrases that uh, pops in my head a lot of times is that uh, Sunday is, is coming. No matter what level of, of preparation I've had throughout the week, you know, Sunday at 11 a.m. is is coming, and I'm going to be expected to preach God's word. And since I, I live with the the unyielding burden of proclaiming God's word on Sunday mornings, I'm often a little anxious on Saturday nights. Now God shows up every Sunday morning, but I fear that He won't every Saturday night. As a matter of fact, Lacey and I recently agreed to stop having date nights on Saturday nights because I'm just not much fun on Saturday nights. And honestly, uh, this week I felt an added pressure to say something profound, to say something meaningful, to say something memorable, to use this special occasion as an opportunity not only to celebrate the last 27 years, but to look forward to many more. It's so all week I've been thinking, what should I say about Charity Baptist Church on her 27th birthday? And here's what I came up with. One sentence. Thank you, Jesus, for another year. Thank you, Jesus, for another year. You know, when we gather together every September and we reflect on the legacy of our church, we should never use it as an occasion to say, look what we've done. Look what we've accomplished. Look what we've built. Instead, we should always say, look at how God sustained us. Look at how God kept us. Look at how God blessed us. Now, church, 27 years later, the doors are still open, the lights are still on, the gospel is still being proclaimed, we're still going because God is still working. Now before we, we dive into John chapter 2, I want to open up with a quick word of prayer. Fathers, we gather this morning to celebrate 27 years of ministry, we are thankful. This week, I, I spent a lot of time working on, on crafting this in, impeccable sermon for this important moment, but as I chased perfection, I was reminded of my imperfection. Father, my, my preaching may be insufficient, but your word is sufficient. The Apostle Paul says that your word is your very breath. It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. So for the next few minutes, would you speak to your people through the proclamation of your word? Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, we are picking up the story at the beginning of, of chapter 2. In the, in the previous chapter, we're provided with, with verbal testimony about Jesus Christ from John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and a few other men who had become 
his first followers. And together they make several considerable claims about Christ. They say he's the Son of God who was with God and is God. They say he is light. He is life. He's the Lamb of God. He's the King of Israel. He's the Messiah. And then at the start of chapter 2, John begins chronicling Christ's public ministry. The rest of the Gospel of John can be divided into two main sections. Chapters 2 through 12 are called the Book of Signs, and chapters 13 through 21 are called the Book of Glory. So over the next 10 chapters, John highlights Christ's miracles which authenticated his message. And in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, where we're going to be today, we read about the first miracle, which was turning water into wine. Now, in our day, when a candidate announces a campaign or a business introduces a product line or a musician releases the album, the first public impression is handled with tremendous care. Every word is calculated. Every detail is organized. Every moment is planned because, as the old saying goes, you only get one chance to make a first impression. So I imagine if if Christ hired a PR firm for advice on launching his public ministry, they would have steered him into a different direction. Because at first glance, his first order of business seems a little bit underwhelming, right? On the other side of redemptive history, we know Christ will do far greater things. In fact, All of the other signs that are recorded in John are way more impressive. In chapter 4, he will heal a dying man. In chapter 5, he will cure a paralyzed man. In chapter 6, he'll create food for thousands and he'll walk on water. In chapter 9, he'll give sight to a blind man. And in chapter 11, he'll raise Lazarus from the dead. And that's not even including the culminating miracle of his ministry, which is his own resurrection. And on top of that, John admits in chapter 20 that there are many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples which are not written in this book. And then in 21, he adds, there were many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John says that if you wrote down every incredible thing that Jesus said and did, the world would make an inadequate library. And so when Jesus turned water into wine, He made his first impression through his first miracle, but his first miracle wasn't overly impressive. And arguably, it was unnecessary. No one was sick. No one was starving. No one was possessed by demons. No one was dying. Christ had limitless options for making his first impression. So why did he use supernatural power to turn water into wine, to sustain sustain the wedding festivities? Why did he provide a miraculous solution for a mere social oversight? Well, the truth is, 
that through this unassuming miracle, Christ teaches us a much deeper lesson about who he is and what he came to do. So let's start by by reading the text together, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. In the final verse, John provides an editorial note which contains three important words, signs, glory, and believed. With these three words, we can construct the shortest possible summary of our passage. Jesus completed the first of his signs, which manifested his glory, and as a result, his disciples believed in him. While it was only a simple miracle at a small family gathering, In an irrelevant town, it pointed to a much more significant truth. D.A. Carson puts it this way, Christ's signs were never naked displays of power or neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses. Instead, his signs were incredible displays of power, which point to deeper realities that can be perceived with the eyes of faith. In other words, the takeaway is not... Christ is helpful, or Christ is resourceful, or or Christ is even powerful. The takeaway is Christ is the Son of God who came to save the world. His sign points to his glory, and his glory calls for your belief. Therefore, the question for the rest of our time is this. What deeper realities do we see symbolized through Christ turning water into wine? Let's look at three answers together, three deeper realities. The first one is in verses 3 through 5. First and foremost, Christ's sign points to the cross. The story begins with a conversation between a mother and son. Mary told Jesus they have no wine. Now we'll go a little deeper on this in the next section, but we should recognize that a first century Jewish wedding If a bride and groom ran out of wine, it was not an awkward moment or a social faux pas. It was a total disaster. And Mary, who was probably related to the bride and groom in some way, brought the problem to Jesus. More than likely, she wasn't anticipating a miracle. She wasn't envisioning wine falling from heaven. But she had spent 30 years with Christ, and she knew he was trustworthy, he was reliable, he was capable. So she sought 
his assistants. Look at three and four again. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Mary told Jesus, the party is out of wine. And he responds in this bizarre way, woman, what does that have to do with me? It probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you are not Jesus Christ, you should never call your mother, your grandmother, or your wife, woman, in the middle of a conflict unless you want to catch a frying pan in the face. This is one place where your WWJD bracelet does not apply, okay? Mary called, or, or Jesus called Mary woman, not, not mom, not mama, not mother, not mommy dearest, just woman. And on the surface, that, that hits our ears wrong. That, that seems cold and disrespectful, but it isn't. Certainly it was unexpected. Certainly, it was surprising. It would have caught Mary off guard a little bit, but some scholars argue that Jesus referring to his mother as woman is similar to you calling your mother ma'am in a similar situation. It wouldn't be unusual for you to call a waitress or a store clerk ma'am, but if you looked across the table at Thanksgiving dinner at your mother and said, excuse me, ma'am, could you pass the mashed potatoes, it would be a weird move. And then in addition to the strange greeting, Jesus asked a pointed question. What does this have to do with me? The Greek literally reads, what to me and to you? Or what is it that concerns me and you together? So Christ was doubly abrupt with his mother. He called her woman, and he essentially said, this is not your place to be calling for my power. And what makes Jesus' stiff arm of Mary so interesting is that ultimately he does take care of the problem. Shortly after their discussion, he turns water into wine and saves the party, which raises the question, why didn't he respond more gently? Why didn't he say, yes, mother, I'm aware of the commotion. I'll take care of it right away. And I think the answer is, he was creating distance. He was building space between human authority and divine authority. He was starting his public ministry. He was sent on a mission by his Father in heaven, and no one, not even his mother on earth, was going to knock him off track. In one sense, Christ was working against a common assumption of a the day that the inside track of blessing came through the physical family. And even though he would take care of the problem, he was reminding Mary of her place in God's kingdom, that she held no special spiritual advantage over others, that she had to come to him in repentance and faith like everyone else. And by the way, this shouldn't be shocking to us. After all, it at 12 years old, Christ gave 
Mary and Joseph a preview of this moment. They, they lost track of him in Jerusalem, and when they finally found him, he was in the temple. And they said to him, Son, she said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have sought you anxiously. Mary is, was, was feeling all that, that fear and worry of, of losing a child temporarily. And 12-year-old Jesus said back to her, Why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? So you see, when Christ completed his first sign, he was officially engaging in his father's business which is why he made the next statement. My hour has not yet come. And if you continue reading in the Gospel of John, you'll, you'll notice that, that Christ mentions his hour several times. John 7.30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. John 12, 23-24, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so it's no secret that every mention of his hour is a reference to his death. And so with that in mind, let's go back and paraphrase verses 3 and 4. Mary says to Jesus, what a disaster, they've run out of wine already, and he says back to her, why are you bringing me into this? I'm not ready to die. They were on two different wavelengths. Of course, Mary couldn't see the big picture. But notice she doesn't argue with him. She doesn't scold him. She doesn't stomp away from him. She told the servants, do whatever he tells you. So the deeper meaning of the moment was certainly sailing over her head. But Mary still trusted that her son would fix the problem. And so we have to ask the question, why would Jesus connect a simple request for wine with the hour of his death? Tim Keller says, to answer the question, we have to consider the symbolism. When Jesus turned water into wine, he was foreshadowing his future work on the cross. This is the parallel. At the wedding party, he will turn shame into joy, and on the cross, he will turn shame into joy. And so Jesus wasn't agitated or aggravated with his mother, he was just looking past his mother, looking past the bride and groom, looking past the wedding party, and staring into his future. When he completed this first miracle, when he started his public ministry, he was starting the clock. And so he was already feeling the burden of sacrifice. He was already envisioning the brutality of the cross. He was already living in the shadow of Calvary. Keller imagines that Christ was thinking in that moment, yes, I've come to bring joy. I've come to bring joy to the world. I can cleanse humanity of its guilt and shame. 
I've come to bring joy, but mother, I'm going to have to die to do it. The message of the gospel is that Christ brought us joy by leaving, by losing all of his. He left the halls of heaven, which were filled with his praises, to be born in a barn which was filled with animals. He left the acceptance of the Father to be despised and rejected by men. He left his crown to pick up a cross. From beginning to end, he submitted fully to his Father's plans. He was perfectly obedient to the point of death for our good and his glory. Let's move to the second point. Second. Christ's sign points to the resurrection. This may be hard to believe, considering the average cost of a wedding in 2022 in America is $27,000. But wedding parties in first century Jewish culture were a much bigger deal than wedding parties in 21st century American culture. Because marriage in their culture was about so much more than bringing two people together. It was about binding a community together. It was about strengthening the next generation. Marriage was good for the commonwealth. As one commentator explains, the bigger, the stronger, the more numerous the families of a town, the better its economy, the greater its military, the more everyone flourished. So when they celebrated, a new marriage covenant, they would invite the entire town and the party would often last a week. As you can imagine, the two essentials for a week-long wedding party were food and drink. Above all else, you had to check those two boxes. And at the start of the passage, John tells us they had run out of one of those two crucial elements. And as a result, the party was over and the family was ruined. They weren't looking at a small breach of etiquette. They were dealing with a social catastrophe. But Christ would save them from their gaff. He instructed the servants to grab six stone jars used for Jewish rites of purification and fill them to the brim with water. They were not filled to the brim. Someone could argue Jesus simply added a small measure of wine. They filled them to the brim. Typically, these jars, which held 20 to 30 gallons of water, were used for purification before making a blood sacrifice. They would cleanse themselves with water before slaughtering an animal to atone for their sin. For centuries, the Old Testament sacrificial system helped Jews determine what was clean and what was unclean. If you were marked by any moral or physical blemish, you were unfit to be in the presence of God until you took part in ceremonial cleansing. But when Christ turned water into wine, he was foreshadowing a new era. In chapter 1, when John the Baptist gave testimony about Christ, he described him as the Lamb of God who would take the sins away from the world under the old system. If you were plagued with a certain illness, if you were promiscuous, if you were a tax collector, if you were not ethnically Jewish, then you were unclean. But Christ was announcing the dawn of a new system. 
By filling the purification jars to the brim with new wine, he was proclaiming to everyone, I've come to bring joy and celebration. I can cleanse you. I can purify you. I can wash away your stains. I can make you new. Out with the old, in with the new. Come taste this new wine. You may remember back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against God for the first time, their first course of action was covering themselves. They were naked and ashamed before God, so they put on fig leaves. And often, all these years later, we, we still play that same game. Instead of taking steps to fight our sin directly, we just keep reaching for bigger and bigger fig leaves. If you were honest, you would probably admit you don't love considering the unclean places in your heart. You don't savor exploring the depths of your sin and it's human nature to want to hide sin. It's human nature to try and fix it on your own. It's human nature to work extra hard so you can look good, do well, and achieve much so that everyone will believe you have it all together. So that everyone will believe you have it all figured out. So that everyone will believe you are the person that you pretend to be on social media. But when you self-evaluate, when you reflect, when you slow down and you peer into the darkest corners of your soul, you recognize a desperate need to be cleansed. Romans 3.23 says, All have fallen short of the glory of God. The standard is not others. The standard is Christ. You may stack up favorably against others, but you fall immeasurably short of God. That's the bad news. But this is the good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In John 2, the bride and groom set aside food and drink for their wedding party and they prayed that their refreshments would last for the whole week. But after a few days, they were out of wine which put them on the verge of social disaster. They made a mistake, but Jesus removed their shame. Jesus rescued them from themselves. On that day, he saved the party. And three years later, he would save the world. He is the great Rescuer. Last point. Finally, 
Christ's sign points to New Jerusalem. At the wedding reception, the, the master of ceremonies is the host of the party. The MC will introduce the bride and groom, announce the start of dinner, open up the dance floor, and act surprised when the bridesmaids break into a five-minute choreographed dance to a Bruno Mars song. His sole purpose is ensuring every guest has a wonderful time celebrating the happy couple. In verse 9, we're introduced to the MC for this wedding party. We don't see him before, but we can assume he was slightly panicked about the whole wine situation. He had spent months planning, and all of his hard work was going up in flames. But then Christ intervened. Christ turned water into wine, instructed the servants to let the MC sample it, and after he tasted it, he immediately complimented the groom. Look at verse 10. He told the groom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I'm not a, a wine connoisseur. Uh, you could probably give me the, the cheapest box wine there is and the, the best wine from the hills of France, and I wouldn't be able to tell uh, any difference at all. But several years ago, my dad switched from Coke to Coke Zero. And often, he would tell us, I, I can't taste the difference anymore. Coke Zero tastes just like regular Coke without all the sugar. And he made this claim on a regular basis. Until the day that a waitress accidentally gave him a glass filled with Coca-Cola Classic. He took one sip, and he was reminded there's actually a huge difference between the two. Church, far too often, we settle for the cheap wine of the world. And we say to ourselves, we try to convince ourselves, I can't taste the difference. I can't taste the difference. Jesus Christ is the true master of ceremonies. He is the true Lord of the feast. When he came, he came to serve, he came to sacrifice, he came to suffer, and all of it was a means to an end. His earthly ministry provided a glimpse of his heavenly kingdom. His brutal death on the cross preceded his glorious resurrection. His first sign on earth pointed to his first feast in heaven. Many years later, while he was in exile, the Apostle John was, was given a vision of, of what heaven would look like, and he wrote these words about Christ's second coming in Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the 
first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There are two words for new in Greek. One means brand new, another means remade. And in Revelation 21, John uses the latter. Al Mohler writes, God's work of salvation is not just to save human souls, but to redeem his creation from all that was ruined by the fall. This new creation will be a complete transformation of the entire cosmos so that heaven and earth will be perfect in every way. N.T. Wright adds, God is going to do with the entire universe what he has already done with the resurrected Christ. All of scripture points to what Christ will do in the end. He will redeem his people. He will wipe away tears. He will bring immense joy. He will make all things new. He is the true master of ceremonies who always provides for us when we're in need. Who always fills us when we're lacking. Who always heals us when we're broken. And He will be the host of an everlasting party in his honor. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the privilege we, we've had this morning to worship you and to spend time in your word. Father, the wedding party in John 2 should, should have been a minor event in a tiny town in an obscure part of the world 2,000 years ago, and yet it was the setting of the first miracle of Jesus. It was where he proved himself for the first time to be the, the Messiah, the, the promised one, the, the King of Israel, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. We are thankful for the testimony of those in attendance. Lord, would you, would you help us see where we are today? As we come to a time of response, would you help us to, to self-evaluate, to, to reflect, to see clearly the true state of our souls? Lord, for those who don't believe, grant them faith. Give them boldness. Help them to take their first steps in a lifetime journey of following you. Allow them to drink of the new wine for the first time today. And for those who do believe, Lord, fill us with joy. 
Remind us of, of the work of Christ as your obedient son, as our great rescuer, as the future master of ceremonies. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for sending your son to save broken, sinful generations. His name we pray. Amen.